Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John chapter 10. John chapter 10, we're going to be in the same general area, in fact, just immediately following where we were last week. Today we want to talk about a couple of questions that will determine kind of the direction of your life. A couple of big questions, not incidental or small questions. We're faced daily with questions that are incidental or small in the grand scope of our lives. But today we want to talk about two questions that are vital, important, significant in our understanding of how we live. And those two questions both are about how we view certain things. The first one is simply this. How do you see God? How you see God, how you understand God, makes a huge determination about your life. And so, what comes to your mind when you think of God, when you hear the phrase God or Heavenly Father, what immediately comes to mind? Do you think of Him as harsh or kind, angry or just mildly ticked off? Distant, impersonal, or close, far, or right next to you. A universal killjoy, a malevolent dictator, a good father. Who you think God is, is significant in your own life. It's A.W. Tozer, a quote that I've used a lot, that is so true that says, what comes to mind when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. You see, there's this invisible law of the soul that we will either be repelled from or drawn to God based on what we think and understand He is like. If we think He is harsh and critical and judgmental, and that is the basis of who He is, we will shirk and shrink from Him. But if we think of Him as loving and welcoming, we will boldly ascend. The first question that is vital in understanding how you're going to live your life is, how do you see God? The second question is similar, except a little different, and that is the question, how do you think God sees you? How do you think God sees you or thinks of you? When you come into the mind of God, what are the thoughts that follow? Do you think God is thinking, man, they need to get with a program? Him again? That again? The same old, same old? Do you think He's disappointed in you? Do you think He's mad at you? What do you think God sees when he sees you? There's an interesting verse in scripture. And you'll have to turn there. It's going to be on the screen. It's Matthew 9, 36. And it gives us a glimpse into the mind of God and how he views us. It says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. 
A couple of words highlighted here in this, and then in a moment we're going to look at a couple other words. But the word compassion, we'll talk about in more detail in a moment. But the, the main point with that, behind that is you understand that he looked upon them and he felt for them. He, 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 was, he, he had something inside of him that was concerned, that, that looked at them and wanted to help. And when he looks at them, he sees, first of all, that they're distressed. And that word is easy for us to kind of understand because the word distress there literally means under great, under great stress or in a place where they have been beaten down by the realities of life. The bad diagnosis, the debts that are piling up, the job that is failing, the Lack of momentum in your own life, pursuing what you think God would have you to pursue, the, the disagreements in relationships in your family, with your co-workers, in your neighborhood, the problems we see on a national level, an international level, and just it seems like one right after another, it just seems like life is beating you down, and then they decide not to do anything about daylight savings time, and you have to lose an hour of sleep. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? By the way, thank you for showing up today. That's half the battle, right? Somebody clap for yourself. That's good, right? No, don't, don't clap for yourself. All right. Uh, so how, how does God see you? Well, first of all, we see that he, he sees our stress. He understands our issues. The of Hebrews says that we have a God who understands, has been tempted, understands the difficulties that we face. Then there's this part of it that's a little different. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed. Life had beaten them down. And then it says, and dejected. At least that's what the CSB says. But that word there literally means cast down or is a technical term for a sheep that has turned over and can't turn itself back over. Some of you remember, we're going to reference Psalm 23 again in a few moments, but some of you remember we did the series of messages last summer on Psalm 23. We talked about this condition. We even showed a picture where sometimes sheep um, find a place that they want to settle down and then, I don't know, they get a, an itch on their back they need to scratch or they just want to wallow for a minute. And so they kind of tip over and they begin to tip a little bit more and a little bit more and eventually they get into a place where they are upside down and they cannot turn themselves over. And if you remember when we talked about that what happens to a sheep that is downcast if someone doesn't come along to help it it dies and so this picture here is he says he sees them and he sees that they've been beaten down by life but more important than that he sees that they are cast down they are upside down and they have no way of doing anything about it and he sees them like that in that position like sheep without a shepherd. And when he sees them beaten down by life and hopeless without someone to come assist them, it says in Scripture that he had compassion on them. It doesn't say that he looked at them and thought, well, that's what you deserve. Look what you got yourself into now. Cannot believe you did that to yourself. The word for compassion there, by the way, is from the bowels. Y'all know what bowels are? You don't want me to go into a ten minute explanation of that, right? 
It's like from deep, deep down, right? And in their culture, it meant that it was the seat of emotion. And we all talk about in our own lives, when we sometimes have something really bad happen in our lives, we talk about that sinking feeling or that it hit us in the gut. And that's the point. Jesus looks at these people and he sees that life has beaten them down and that they are hopeless without a shepherd. And he feels it deep within himself, this desire to help. Someone has defined compassion as the deep awareness and understanding of the suffering of others that compels you to do something about it. One pastor described the feeling that Jesus feels here, and so the only thing that he could compare it to is as a parent, when you see one of your children going through something physically that hurts them, or emotionally that hurts them, and you are in a position at that moment that you can't do anything about it, but everything inside of you wants to do something about it. You've ever have a child that's physically injured, maybe in a significant way, and your 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 guts just want to do something, and you can't, or you do what you can. See, sometimes when we hear the word compassion, we think of kind of lovey-dovey stuff. This is a visceral desire and concern to help. It's interesting, by the way, we talked about this in the Psalm 23 series, that God makes this metaphor a sheep and shepherd a lot. Somewhere around 200 times in the Old Testament and New Testament, he compares us to sheep and himself to the shepherd. Sheep, as we talked about, are dependent and vulnerable and can't find water on their own will sit and eat at the same spot until they eat down to the roots and destroy what they are eating and then will starve because they won't move to find something else. Not a lot of documentaries out there about wild sheep, by the way. Right? Because there aren't any. Without a shepherd, they don't survive. They have to be led. And yet sheep are valuable. Whole towns can live off of sheep, their wool, their milk, their meat. And so this comparison of the shepherd and the sheep is what God wants us to understand. The way the shepherd feels about the sheep is the way that God feels about us. And Jesus extends that metaphor in chapter 10, starting in verse 10 where we left off last week, because it is the hinge verse for the rest of this chapter. Verse 10 says, A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. 
I have other sheep that are not from this pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Again, the Jews were divided because of these words. Many of them saying, he has a demon and he's crazy. Why do you listen to him? Yet others are saying, these aren't the words of someone who is demon-possessed. And anyway, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? A couple of points out of this passage that we need to understand today. And the first is simply this. As he declares, Jesus is the good shepherd. Now that's obvious when you read this. He states it a couple of times here. He says it boldly. A couple of things that that would have done for the people around there is, first of all, I told you over 200 times in the Old Testament and the New Testament, a lot of those are Old Testament references. God refers to the people as the sheep and to himself as the shepherd. And so when Jesus declares that he is the good, and we'll talk about that word good in a minute, shepherd, when he is that shepherd, he is declaring to these people in their language, in their understanding, that he is God Almighty in the person of Jesus. So it's a declaration of deity from Jesus that he says, you are the sheep, I am the shepherd, the good shepherd. Now, a couple of things about that phrase as well. Sometimes when we hear the word shepherd, especially because of the way that we have put it into art in the last 150 years, we think of something that is cute and sentimental. Like the picture that hangs on the wall in a lot of churches of a very serene and gentle looking Jesus Cuddling a lamb. Shepherds were not cute and cuddly men. In fact, their jobs were tiring, dangerous. It was some of the hardest labor that could be done by men in that time. It was a rugged environment. Okay, outside of the good shepherd, it's time for you to help me here. Who's probably the most famous shepherd in the Bible? David, right? What do we know about David? That he was calm and collected and never did anything kind of warlike in himself? Is that what we know about David? What do we know about David? What what did he do? Killed Goliath? What else did he do? Killed a bear? Anybody here ever done that? Like with your bare hands? Not with like a, like, I don't know if you know this or not. They didn't have the Second Amendment back then because they didn't have guns back then. Right? Like he did that with with maybe a sling, maybe his hands. Do you know what doesn't kill a bear with its bare hands? A sentimental, sweet boy. That's rugged and warrior like. You remember what they said about David, right? The shepherd boy when he would march through town after he'd been in a few wars. Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands. If they made an accurate movie of David's life, it would not be PG rated. Mainly because of the violence and some other stuff. The point is, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he is not saying that he is meek, although Jesus was meek. He's not saying he was mild, although he was mild. In this case, he is saying he is rugged and do whatever it takes to protect the sheep. 
It also says here the word good, and, and we, we don't understand that word in the way that it is since here because that word in the original language means it is beautiful or honorable or noble. It is the opposite of shameful or disgraceful. What he's saying is he is the honorable one. He is the beautiful one. He is the right shepherd. Now, in this passage, he compares himself not against thieves and not against robbers in the second part. He's compared himself against a hired hand. And the difference between a shepherd and a hired hand is when the going gets tough, the hired hand leaves because he's not going to put up with it because he doesn't have a relationship with the sheep. If it's just a job to you, some of you can understand this. If it's just a job to you, it's not worth your life. But for the shepherd, this is his life. These are his sheep. He has a relationship with them that makes him willing to lay down his life for them and that he is willing to do whatever it takes to protect and provide for the sheep in his care. And he tells us in this passage, not only is he the good shepherd, but that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says that multiple times. He makes it very clear that he chooses to do that. He is obviously foreshadowing his own death on the cross. But he's saying to them, I am willing, because of my relationship, to put my life on the line for these sheep. How does God see you? He sees you as someone valuable enough that he is willing to put his life on the line and lay it down for you. The word for there that is used in this passage multiple times, he lays down his life for the sheep, is sacrificial language. It is technical language. It means that he is dying or laying his life down in place of you. It describes the lengths to which he will go to in order to show you his love. It's the lengths he will go to because of his relationship with you. The depth of his compassion for you includes laying down his life. We are in this season when we are marching towards Holy Week and Good Friday and the Resurrection Sunday. And as we move towards that, we're reminded again and again and again and again of how Jesus not didn't do something for us abstract, that he literally stood in our place. He was punished in our place. He was abandoned in our place. He was rejected in our place. He was beaten in our place. He was crucified in our place. He laid down his life. He literally says... That he is willing to stand and take what was coming for you and take it upon themselves. Some of you may be familiar with, many of you may be familiar with, um, what some consider to be the best rock band of all time. A group called U2. Um, This is their album cover from several years ago, The Joshua Tree, which some people think is one of the greatest albums of all time and uh, in the process of the Joshua Tree, they toured the Joshua Tree. It, they, the, 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 the record itself is their homage to American music. They're Irish. Um, it's kind of crazy. They formed because uh, the guy there in the very back, uh, the drummer, put up a sign at his school that said, anybody want to start a band? And so they started a band. Four friends started a band in his kitchen. Became the biggest selling rock band in the world. On the Joshua Tree tour, there was a song that they sang again and again. It's one of the most popular songs. It's called Pride in the Name of Love. 
The song is an homage to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the way that he gave his life for a cause he believed in and was right. They were doing this tour in the mid-80s, and in the mid-80s, some of the lyrics of the song did not set well with people that were still against Martin Luther King Jr. holiday being celebrated on a national level. Now, just in case you're wondering how specific were they in the lyrics, here are the lyrics that were in question, the third verse of the song. And it says, early morning, April 4, shot rings out in the Memphis sky. Free at last, they took your life. They could not take your pride. They were going to Arizona. Arizona was a state that was fighting very hard not to have a national or state holiday for Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. It kind of became a watershed moment. Bono, who uh, is the lead singer and the guy that wrote the lyrics, came out strongly against the governor of that state as they were getting ready to play that state. And they began to receive word that death threats were being made on Bono's life. In fact, the FBI became involved, and in his new autobiography, Bono shares some of these details for the first time. FBI became involved and they said that they received a credible threat that said, if you sing Pride in the Name of Love, if you sing that song, you will not make it through the third verse. They debated canceling the show. Bono said, I'm supposed to be the rock star. I'm supposed to be the one that doesn't worry about anything. But truthfully, I was scared to death. He said, we went out. And we decided we were going to play it at the normal time in our show. We had swept. We knew that they had done their job as best they could. But we went into singing that song without knowing for sure. This is what he writes in his autobiography. He said, if we started pride defiantly by the third verse, I was losing some of my nerve or at least losing concentration. So it wasn't just melodrama when I closed my eyes and sort of half kneeled to disguise the fact that I was fearful to sing the rest of the words. Just in case you forgot, here are the words. And he began to sing early morning, April 4. Shots ring out in the Memphis sky. Free at last, they took your life. They could not take your pride. And then he reveals this for the first time in this autobiography that just released this year. It was only when I opened my eyes that I realized I couldn't see the crowd. Adam Clayton, their bass player, was blocking the view, standing right in front of me. He stood in front of me, blocking me for the entire third verse. Literally willing to put his life on the line. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus emphasizes in this passage the intentionality of his sacrifice and is tied directly to the intimacy of his relationship with the sheep. And here's what we have to understand. It was absolutely necessary because there is not a better description of who we are without Jesus than a sheep that is downcast on our backs with no hope for a future, sheep without a shepherd. D.A. Carson says this about this passage of Scripture. 
The shepherd does not die for his sheep to serve as an example, throwing himself off a cliff in a grotesque and futile display while bellowing, see how much I love you. No. The assumption is that the sheep are in mortal danger, that in their defense the shepherd loses his life, that by his death they are saved. That and that alone is what makes him the good shepherd. He lays down his life for you. I don't know what your concept of God is, but I can tell you this. If your concept of how God feels about you is anything different than he is willing to die for me, then you have a false concept of how God feels about you. And here's the last thing, and then we're done. Jesus wants to be your good shepherd. Now here's what I want to return to Psalm 23, because... I believe that as Jesus declares that he is the good shepherd, that, yes, all of that understanding from the Old Testament understanding of sheep without a shepherd, of the fact that God is the shepherd and they are the sheep is in there. But I think also what is behind his declaration and the laying down of his life and all that he is saying in this moment is an understanding of Psalm 23 and what that tells us about God as our shepherd and Jesus wants to be the good shepherd in your life. So if you've got your Bibles open or you've got it on your app, turn over to Psalm 23 with me. Because I just want us to see what it means for Jesus to be the good shepherd in our life. And it starts right there in Psalm 23, verse 1. We can almost say it together. Some of you don't have to turn there, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. It means that Jesus wants to meet your deepest needs. And our deepest needs are not material. They're not finite. They're not here and now. Our deepest needs are to be known by the God of the universe in a relationship with Him, to be saved from the sins that we have, have meaningful relationships on this planet with other people that are saved by Jesus through our family, our spiritual family, and to serve and to build the kingdom that God has called us to build. And God wants to meet that deepest need through Jesus Christ. We cannot have a relationship with Him without the forgiveness of sins that comes from the death of the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep and giving us an opportunity to have a relationship with him. He wants to be your good shepherd. He wants to meet your deepest needs. He wants to secondly restore your soul. He lets me lie down in green pastures, verse 2. He leads me in quiet waters. He renews my life. The word there is literally restores to the place that it was. It is to take something that is old and broken down and to put it into a better shape than it was to begin with. A few months ago now, somehow, I got uh, I went down the YouTube rabbit hole of restoring metals or what really caught my eye restoring a nintendo entertainment system to working condition and all the 80s kids said three of us all right good but you know we take something broken and old but they they were taking things from the 1800s that had been stuck in dirt and using chemicals and power washing and all that, it was amazing to see this old, broken, rusty instrument turn into a beautiful, vital instrument again. And that's the picture. God wants to restore 
your soul. By the way, the word for soul here is the same Hebrew word that is used for when Jesus says he lays down his life. It means the fullness of who we are, the soul. It is the word that we get psyche from. It means the depths of who we are. He wants to restore who we are. He wants to meet that deepest need and not just forgive us of our sins, but turn us into the creation that he intended for us to be. Transform us into his likeness. He wants to take whatever guilt and suffering and terrible things that have happened in your life, and he wants to use Use them to restore you to something that is beautiful to display. The book of Ephesians says that we are trophies of His grace. Shined up for people to see. He wants to meet your deepest needs. He wants to restore your soul. He wants to guide your life. The end of chapter 23 verse 3 says, He leads me along the right path for His name's sake. He wants to give you the, the, the path to go on, to guide you and direct you where you need to go, when you need to go, how you need to go, in order to give you a life that is meaningful here and now. He wants to deliver you from evil. Verse 4, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no danger, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He wants to protect you. From the evil one. The prayer that comes in the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. That's what He wants to do. To give you protection around and beside and in front. And that doesn't necessarily mean physical protection. But He's protect your witness and your life and your goodness. Verses 5 and the first part of 6 tells us that He wants to fill us with joy. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love pursue me all the days of my life. He wants to fill your life with joy. And then the last thing, he wants to give you eternal life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Again, I don't, I don't know how you answer that first question about how you see God. Vitally important for how you do. Can we put that list back up for just a second, Leslie? But what I know is that the way God sees you is that He has compassion from the depths of His soul because of the way life has beaten you up and the way that you are cast down like a sheep without a shepherd. And He cares so much that He did something about it. And He literally laid down His life for you as a sacrifice in your place in order that He could, if you would follow Him and give your life to Him, meet your deepest needs, restore your soul, guide and direct your life, protect you from evil, fill your life with joy, and give you eternal life. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like a God that loves me and cares for me and wants what's best for me. That does not sound like a God who is sitting in heaven going, cannot believe that guy again. Well, yes, there are times that I'm sure he looks at my life and I'm like, man, you are missing out on so much. Our relationship could be much, much sweeter. Your, your soul could be much 
better. You, your direction of your life would be much clearer. You, you have protection from the evil things that are crowding, from the temptation that is coming. I can provide that to you. Yes, I'm sure those are times, but it's not out of disgust. It is out of a desire to see my life more than I could ever imagine it to be. And my question for you today is, have you surrendered your life to the Good Shepherd? And if you have, if you've accepted Him as your Savior, are you allowing Him to meet your deepest needs and restore your soul and guide your life and protect you from evil and temptation and fill your life with joy? And are you enjoying that life eternal abundantly here and now? In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, I'm just going to ask you to respond. And maybe it is. You've never given your life to Jesus. You've never responded to Him. You've never said yes to the salvation that He offers. Or you'd like to ask a question about how God could ever love you, or how He gave His life for you, or what that means. I'd love to have a conversation. Noah and I will be down here. We'd love to talk with you. Maybe you're here and you just realize that because of things in your own life, you have not been experiencing the life that the Good Shepherd wants to provide. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray in this moment that you would help us to see you as you are. Yes, holy. Yes, righteous. Yes, a jealous God, but also, Lord, a Lord of compassion and care and love. And Lord, help us to understand how you see us. And we pray, Lord, that you would move in this place just as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.